You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Good morning. The, I'm going to read the scripture here in a moment, and it is in John 9. It's a big block passage, so just uh, settle in. John 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but, it, it is he, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how, are you, how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. And now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and he had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see now? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, and saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and yet you would teach us. And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, 
You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. This is a a truly amazing passage. We've been walking through the Gospel of John, and as we have talked about, the Gospel stories in Scripture are stories. And specifically, Gospel stories are stories about Jesus, the the personhood and the works of him who came. And John talks about, even later in this Gospel, his whole purpose, his whole purpose of the book of John is that we, the audience, the Jews there, and also us now may see the real Jesus and we may believe in him. And that's what we see here in this piece of scripture, in this chapter of John. The whole point of this chapter, what I'm going to hope to prove to you today, is that we must have, we must truly see Jesus to truly worship him. And the way that we get to that place, the way that we we see this is by three main ways. So we're going to look at Awareness of brokenness leads to desperation. This idea that as you uh, become aware of your own need, as you become aware of your own brokenness, as you become aware of your own depravity, that will create in you a desperation. But if you're not aware of that thing, if you're not aware of your need, if you're not aware that you need to be saved, then you will miss the Savior. The second thing we look at is that desperation that's created because of that need will lead to obedience. Just as we just talked about with the man, we're looking to that in more detail. But as you're desperately in need to be saved, you will obey. And finally, we're going to look at how that obedience will lead to truly seeing and true worship. So go ahead. We're going to pray for a moment, and then we'll jump right in. Dear Lord, we are so thankful for you. We're thankful for this day. We're thankful that you are a God that desires us. You're not a distant God. You're not a God that is far off. You're not a God that just created it and walked away, but you are a God that wants to be intimately involved in our lives. And I pray, Lord, right now for me that everything that I say, everything that we work through in this passage will be completely from you. If I say anything out of selfish ambition or out of self-praise or self-exaltation, I pray that everyone in here will forget it. I pray, Lord, that this will be solely, solely about you and making much of you. And I pray, Lord, for the hearts in this room, whether we're blinded or we can see, Lord, I pray that you will soften us so that we can really enjoy the true Jesus. We can worship you fully, 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 Lord. I pray this all in your son, Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so like I said, that first point, awareness of brokenness. It's this idea that we have to... uh, learn of how we are broken. And the first three verses in this, in this chapter 9, in chapter 9 of John's gospel, I really think that you could preach a 50-minute sermon on just these three verses. Because what's happening is Jesus is giving a profound theological statement. He's giving a profound reality, spiritual reality. He's telling his disciples who are asking him just an abstract question when, he asked, when they ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus completely pushes that aside and says it's actually not about the man at all. And it's definitely not about his parents. What he says, it's, it's all about God. The whole reason this man is suffering is about God. Simply said, God is for God. 
all of creation, all of suffering, everything we do, self-sacrifice, whatever it be in this life, all of it ultimately is for the glory of God. And this is a really important concept to get. Because if we miss this, then as we walk through this story, as we walk through trying to decipher what am I supposed to take away from this story, then we're going to be blind to the reality. If we miss that this is ultimately all about God, just as Jesus is saying here when he says that God's work may be displayed in him, then we're going to not be able to see the true purpose that this scripture has for us. So with that said, that awareness of fallenness like I was talking about, I want to take a closer look at this man and what his fallenness looks like. Go ahead and read with me in verse 8 again. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Okay, so we're taking a moment. We talk about this a lot. As we read narrative, the purpose of why there's narrative in Scripture is that it may invoke in us emotions. As an audience, we can pretty much go, ooh, and ah, as we walk through the text. And so we can't skip over the fact that this man is blind. We actually have to try to, try to sympathize. What would this man's life be like that he was blind? And even if, I don't think there's anyone that's blind in here, but even if there was or if you had a close relative that is blind, Back then, 2,000 years ago, in the Middle East, this man's blindness would have affected his life far greater than anyone born in America right now. Physically, this man obviously couldn't work. We know from this passage that he's a beggar. We know that he uh, is unable to provide for himself. And so what the people say about him, his neighbors, what they say is, he's just, is this not the man that sits and begs? This blindness, this ailment that this man has, has made it so that he can't even work. Socially, what should we know? What we can we assume? He's never married. He can't provide for his family. There's no one there with him. And so he hasn't married. He hasn't enjoyed something that all of us desperately desire, an emotional connection with a spouse. And his entire identity has turned into a beggar. Even, even from a uh, worship standpoint, his life has been greatly affected by this blindness. For him, he can't read the Torah. Braille wasn't inv- invented into like, 2,200 years ago. So he has no ability to read scripture, and he can't even learn the ways of God in a lot of ways. He can't enjoy the visual aspects of worship. And so everything about this man's life is sad. It's sad. And that is what we should think about as we read this. Like, man, this is, this is wrong. This is broken. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And something else about this man, something that he knows better than anyone else around him, is his own blindness, right? He's acutely aware of the fact that he's blind. Every single time he hears a family laughing, what is he thinking about? I wish that could be me, but I can't because I'm blind. Every time that he hears a a businessman bartering in the market, I wish that could be me, but it won't be because I'm blind. Every time that he hears a priest preaching in the temple, I wish that could be me but it won't be because I'm blind. Do you see what I'm getting at? This man's blindness, what it's doing is it's creating a desperation in him to not be blind. His life is consumed by the reality that his body is broken. And a fair question that you guys might have is like, how does this apply to us? I'm not blind. I live 2,000 years later than this man, and I also live in America and not the Middle East. So how does this apply? 
Well, something that Jesus does throughout his ministry that we read throughout all of the Gospels is he takes these physical miracles, these physical healings, and he uses them to showcase, to reveal to us a spiritual reality. And that's the same in this passage too. Jesus did really actually physically heal this man's blindness. But in addition to that, and what the whole purpose of it was, was that he may show to his disciples, to the Jews, and ultimately to us as we read it now, that that blindness doesn't represent just physical blindness. That blindness is supposed to represent general brokenness, general fallenness, sin. It's supposed to represent the lowly, the outcasts, the ones filled with grief and shame, the ones enslaved to sin. That's who the blind are in this passage. And, the, and Jesus says this, he, he reveals this in verse uh, 39. Go ahead and look there with me. This is what he says. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. He's not talking literally in this point, at this point about the blind in the scene. What he's talking about is all those people low, all those people that are broken, all those people that are depraved, all those people that have broken thoughts in their minds and their hearts, all those people that are enslaved to sin in different ways, those are the people that I came for so that they may see. And the people that can see, the people that say, I have nothing wrong with me, the people that are, I'm actually a really good person, he's saying those are the people that will ultimately end up being blind. And it is fair. It's fair for some of us in here to say, but I am a good person. I do this. I do this. I don't cheat on my taxes, whatever it is. And, but if you're honest with yourself, internally you know, and I know this about myself too, that I like to put on a good public display to other people, but internally there's some really seriously bad stuff. Bad thoughts, bad desires, bad actions, that if everyone knew what was going on in my own heart, in my own mind, it would be extremely embarrassing. That's why Paul says, I am the chief of all sinners. He's not, he does truly believe he's the greatest of all sinners, and we all should believe believe that about ourselves too, because no one else's sin can even compare to what's going on within us. Internally, we are all broken. Internally, we are all actually blind. Every single one of us, devout Christian, casual Christian, skeptic in here, Every single one of us deals with personal sin. And deep down, if you're honest with yourself, you know that you're not truly a good person. Just as much as we always have gotten better, we just have gotten much better at hiding it to ourselves and to other people. This is, I was thinking about this as I was prepping the sermon. I read this story once about a man who had a condition called uh, congenital analgesia. I don't know how to say it, but... And essentially what it was is this man, uh, he couldn't uh, feel pain. Not like normal people. His uh, nerve receptors were extremely lessened, and it's just this rare condition where he couldn't feel pain at all. And at first, when I was hearing about this guy, when I was reading about him, I was like, that kind of sounds like a cool superhero power, right? Can't feel pain. But this man's life was actually really, really tragic. It was littered with hospital visits. And even small little things that happened to him, it would blow up into a much bigger thing because he was completely unaware that he was being hurt. He was completely unaware of what pain was supposed to be doing for him to go and seek help, to go and seek healing. And so this man's life was filled with hospital visits, 
and ultimately ended up in a premature death. All because he couldn't feel, he had no recognition, he was unaware of the brokenness of his body. And that's what, that's what is so important for us to get in this text. Just like this blind man was so, so aware of his own blindness, that created in him a desperation to be healed. And for us, that is how we have to grow in our awareness of our sin. If you are in here and you think, I'm actually a pretty good person, maybe I sin occasionally, but I'm really all not that bad, you're lying to yourself. The reality is, the more that you are recognizing and aware of your sin, the more desperate you'll be to obey Christ the more desperate you'll be to go to him, to seek healing from him. If you refuse to recognize your need to be healed, then you're going to also refuse the one that comes to heal you. And it's interesting, we see this contrast in this passage between the blind man and also the Pharisees, right? This blind man is very aware of his blindness. And what Jesus wants us to see in this passage is uh, that the Pharisees are ironically blind to their own blindness, right? He is the one that sees, and they are the ones that are blind. And as we go through it, you'll see why. Why are the Pharisees so blind to their own need of him? And we're going to see it play out that it's because of their pride. It's because they truly do believe in of themselves they're okay, but in reality they're not. Only when we are desperate like this man will we obey when Christ asks us to obey hard things. And that brings us to our second point, that obedience to Christ will lead to truly seeing and truly being healed. Go ahead and read with me verses uh, 6 through 7. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, that's Jesus, spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. I don't know if I could say that, but that's just a weird way to heal someone, right? That's just odd. We know that Jesus doesn't need to heal like this. He's, he's healed by words before. He's healed even by just doing it, not even needing words. So it's, we have to ask the question, why would he heal like this? It's not because this is some magic thing he has to do to heal this man's eyes. That can't be it. So we have to ask, how? And different commentators, or di- why? Different commentators have different ideas of why he healed like this, but I, I think, I think there's one main one that's so important to take away. And to find it, we have to think through, when has God done something like this before? When has God essentially played in mud before? And we have to go back all the way to the creation story to see it. It'll be on the screen behind me, but this is Genesis 2-7. This is God's creation of Adam. And he says this, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And if you're familiar with the creation story, up until this point, God's created a bunch of things, the stars, the land, animals, water, plants. And what has he done when he's created these things? How does he create them? What the story says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be water, and there's water, right? All he's done so far is spoken them into existence. So we have to ask the question as we get to this part in the creation narrative, why does God change his MO? What's different about man that God would, would not just speak man into existence? We know that he can, but instead he does something much more intentional. And we have to ask, why? Why would he be more intentional like this? 
Well, the first thing that we look at is the dust, right? In the same way that a lot of us, if you've ever made clay before, if you, had, if you bought like a TJ Maxx clay pot versus one that you spent two hours making, you probably value the one you made before. So the first thing we should take away from this reality is what God is saying about man by the way he creates him is, I value mankind over all the rest of creation. His intentionality shows I value mankind. They're the crown jewel of my creation. They are the best. That's what I like. That's what he's saying by being intentional with creating Adam out of the dust, out of the mud. But there's a second thing that's really interesting here. I just love when I read the creation story. It's this idea that God breathes life into the nostrils of Adam. And we think, well, that's just a weird thing to do. That's just an odd thing to do. Like if you guys walked into a room and I was just breathing into some guy's nostrils, you'd probably turn a 180 and walk back out, right? That's just an odd thing. And so we have to ask ourselves, why? Why would God create Adam like this? What is he trying to tell us? And what God is trying to show to us is, I want closeness with you. I did not create mankind so I could stand at a distance. I want to be intimately close with you. I want to be involved in every aspect of your life, and I want you to need me. That's what he wants. That's why God created Adam like this. And so when we have Genesis, the creation narrative, in the back of our minds as we read this this miraculous healing from Christ, we're able to see something a little bit clearer. We're able to answer that question, why would Jesus heal him like this? So we we know from the rest of Genesis that God created Adam and Eve, that they were created to be in a perfect relationship with him, yet they sinned, they broke God's will, They ate of the apple, and then they were cast out. And even worse than they were cast out, God said, I'm going to return you back to dust. That's the curse of sin. He says, from dust you came and dust you will return. I'm going to send you back to it. And so what Jesus is trying to convey here to us, what we should be seeing is in the same way that he's physically healing this man's eyes, he's saying, I'm going to give you new birth. Adam was born from the dust. I am going to give you new birth by this healing. I'm going to recreate you. That's a a theme throughout the New Testament. It's new creation. Those that have given their lives to Christ, those that have recognized their own sinfulness, what's happening to them is they are a new creation. They are being restored back to a relationship that was once broken. And so what Jesus is communicating to all of us here as he does this odd healing and swirling his finger into the mud and placing it on this man's eyes, he's saying, I'm recreating you. The life of brokenness that you have felt your whole life is not that anymore. And even greater than your blindness being healing, I have come to take away your sin. The irony of this is man came from dust, and what had to happen was God had to literally and spiritually enter into that dust so that we may be in right reconciliation with him. That's the gospel, right? That's what's being communicated by Jesus healing like this that he would live a perfect life, die for us, enter the dirt for three days, and then one day rise again, giving victory over sin once and forever. But if you want that, if you want that life with Jesus once and forever, if you want that closeness with Christ again, then you have to learn to be aware of your brokenness. Could you imagine if this man, if Jesus would have come up to him and said, I'm going to heal your eyes, and he said, I'm not blind. You know, he's like stumbling around, bumping into stuff. I'm not blind. What are you talking about? How ridiculous would that be? But that's us. That's us as we 
walk around in life thinking we've got it all together when in reality it's so evident to everyone else we don't. We have to learn to be desperate for the healing of Christ. And the only way we're going to do that is if you grow in awareness of your depravity, if you grow in awareness of your sin. And when we do, Christ is emphatic. He wants to meet us there. The heart of the Bible, the whole reason we have this book is that we may be redeemed back to God. And God does not see you in your brokenness, in your slavery to sin. He does not see you in disgust. What happens is exactly what happened to Jesus here. That he's overwhelmed with compassion to rescue you. It's a necessity of the very nature of who he is. That he shows compassion on those who need it. In verse 3, what we talked about earlier when Jesus says the works of God, this is the greatest work of God, that Jesus has come to be a reconciler to the estranged, a healer to the broken. He's come to gather the lost and bring sight to the blind. And guys, that's all of us. Every single one of us fit into that category. God wants to heal each one of us. The question is, are you desperate enough to know it? But it's not just that we become desperate of our need. It's that we actually have to take action once that healing comes, right? There's a responsibility on our part to respond to Christ. It's not enough to believe Jesus has come to heal you, but we must actually obey him. Otherwise, what we're doing is we're proving that belief was never genuine. If I'm not going to obey you after you heal me. If I'm not going to obey you to be healed, then I'm realizing that faith was not genuine. And so we can't skip over this this part of the story that the man obeyed, right? Jesus did not heal him right away. The moment the mud touched his eyes, he was not healed. Jesus said, you have to actually go. Go and wash. And what does this man do? That desperation created in him a desire to go immediately, right? He did not go ask people's advice. He didn't say, does this make sense? He was so aware of his sin that he went immediately to go wash. And that is what we have to get to. We have to get to this point where we're so desperate, so desperate to be healed, so desperate to be in right relationship with God again, so desperate to be broken free of the chains of sin that we will obey no matter the cost, no matter the awkwardness. And this was awkward for the guy, right? I mean, it had to be awkward. People definitely saw him walking with caked mud on his eyes to the pool, probably had to wait in line, and people were like, what are you doing? He's like, "Ah, don't worry about it. We'll see if it works. It's awkward. And, and following Christ for a lot of us in here, it's awkward. And even worse, sometimes it's just, it's life-altering. It's, it's so hard. For some of us, it would be giving up sin that feels like death if we gave it up. It feels like this has become such a big part of my life. If I were to give it up, what would people think of me? What would I have for joy? All of these different ways you'd say, if I give this up, what do I have? For some of us, it's, it's simply that we're just, we believe in God. We even obey him in a lot of the external ways, but we're so embarrassed by him. I know this is one I struggle with. I struggle with just witnessing about Christ, proclaiming him in my life. I'm so concerned with how people think about me or hurting a relationship or embarrassment that I struggle deeply with just representing the reality that's within me, that God is my God. 
I was reading a, a book recently called The Insanity of God, and it's about the persecuted church, right? And this author, Nick Ripkin, the author of the book, he uh, decides to go around to different countries where there's been serious persecution and uh, ask them, what do we as the American church need to know because we do not experience persecution like you? And he talks to this pastor that was jailed in the USSR, right? And this pastor, he, the story goes like this, essentially. He uh, had a family, and they didn't have a church they could go to because it was controlled by the communists. And uh, he decided, I'm just going to start a Bible study with my wife and my two kids. And they started a Bible study, and over a couple months, that Bible study grew to about 300, 400 people. All of his neighbors were saying, can you teach us how to read the Bible too? And obviously, it got the attention of the government. And the government came to him and said, if you do this again, if you hold one more service, we're going to drag you away and throw you in jail for the rest of your life. And so that Sunday came around. He held the largest service he had ever had. And just like they said, they walked in while he's preaching. They took him down. They dragged him and threw him in jail for 30 years. Every day he was tortured. Every single day they said, if you just rebuke Christ, if you give up, if you deny your faith, we'll allow you to go back to your family. And this man never did. And eventually they released him because they realized they weren't going to be able to break him. And Nick Ripkin is just like, wow, like, what am I supposed to, I don't even know what to take away from this. Like, how can we apply this to ourselves in the American church? We never experienced persecution like this. And what the guy, the pastor says to him, he says, don't ever give up in freedom what we would never have given up in persecution. That's the type of radical obedience that someone that sees the true Jesus lives out in their life. But here, it's so easy for us to give him up just because we don't want an awkward moment. And what's happening is we're realizing, man, I'm blind. I'm blind to the real Jesus. And I've been so convicted by that. So convicted by my inability to obey Christ because I'm blind to my own sin. I'm blind to my own desperation. And for some of you in here, that obedience, if you were to actually take that, it would be your first time taking it. Or maybe your first time in a long time. And maybe you've already thought of, like, man, I'd have to give this up, and that would be way too hard. That would be awkward. That would make me feel weak. It'd be too hard. And this is what I would say. I would say, uh, pause, take a moment, and what, look at the story again. Look at this man's faith. It didn't go from nothing to blown out right away. Look at verse 11 with me. This is what he says. They ask him, who did this? The people ask him. And he says, the man called Jesus. He doesn't say Lord. He doesn't say God. He doesn't say Messiah. He just calls him the man. This is after he's been healed. And in verse 17, Pharisees ask him again, who do you say he is? And he says, the prophet. Not get better. Not really the whole thing, though. Not Messiah. Not Lord. But finally, at the end of the story, when Jesus is talking to him, what does he call Jesus? Lord. And he worships him. And what you should take away from this is that small steps of obedience, genuine small steps of obedience, do eventually lead to greater leaps of obedience. And so if you're in here and you're like, man, that, I'm a skeptic of this. Maybe I've been feeling tugs on my heart of I want to follow Christ more devoutly. I want to really pursue him, but I, I don't even know how to do that, or I don't even know how to desire that, or maybe my desires for sin are far greater than my desires for God right now. Then this is what I would say. Start with this. This is the first step of obedience. Start to pray for a desire to obey. I do this often in my life. When I'm not feeling joy in my relationship with God, when I'm not feeling 
a desire for him, that's my prayer. I'll pray this. I'll say, God, give me a greater desire to desire you. And what's happening as we pray this prayer, this really small prayer, this really small step of obedience, is we're actually beginning to desire by the fact of that prayer. So for some of you, this first step of obedience might be, Lord, I do recognize I'm broken. I do need you. And give me a greater willpower to give up the things of this world. And if you genuinely mean that, and you genuinely continue in that prayer, one day you will start to see these greater leaps of obedience. But the other thing is true also. Small steps of obedience lead to greater leaps of obedience, but small steps of disobedience will lead to greater leaps of disobedience. Look at it with the Pharisees. It's a perfect contrast. The Pharisees' journey, right, through this story, is they, they begin with this conclusion about Christ. He is a sinner. He is not from God. That's their beginning. That's what they believe about Christ. And everything else is filtered through that view. And I love how John laid this out because he really actually made this pretty much a logical formula for us. He wants us to see this very clearly. And what I mean by logical formula is just uh, there's some what's called conditional statements, right? And it's if this is true, if this is true, if this is true, then this conclusion is also true. And that's how John lays this out. Here are the conditional statements. First, this man was born blind. Second, this man now can see. Third, Jesus performed this miracle. And fourth, the only one that can open eyes is God. So the conclusion of those four conditional statements is Jesus is from God. Jesus is God. And this poses a huge problem for the Pharisees because they hate that conclusion. That's the opposite of the conclusion they've made about Christ. And so what do they have to do? They have to look at one of these conditional statements and say, well, which one of these is false? Because that can't be right. So which one of these is false? And what they decide on is, this man must not have been born blind. He must be lying. His testimony must not be true. So what do they do? They call the man. He gives testimony of it. They say, you must be, you must be lying. You must not have been blind. So they call his parents, right? And this is all public, by the way. People are watching this happen. He calls the parents, and the parents go, that is for sure, son, and he was most definitely born blind. Now he sees we don't know how. And this is starting to get really embarrassing for the Pharisees because they're really stuck between a hard place now. They really don't know what to do because they are refusing still to recognize, even with the overwhelming evidence that Christ is from God, and so they don't know what to do. So what do they do? They call back the man, and in verse 24, you see them say this to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And what this means, what they're trying to do is they want to publicly shame Jesus. They say, although we can't disprove his testimony, let's just get him to publicly shame Jesus so that his testimony doesn't really matter anymore. And we should be shocked by the Pharisees' lack of will, like lack of insight to see the, tr- the evidence before them. They are outright refusing to see the evidence laid out before them because they don't want the conclusion. And guys, this is us. This is us. Although the evidence is overwhelming, although God has pricked our hearts in many ways, we don't want to give up the things of this world. And so what we're doing is we're actively blinding ourselves from being able to see really what Christ has laid out for us, just like the Pharisees did. And why, how do we do that? Again, it goes back to pride. It goes back to this idea of, I don't really need him. I don't really need him. The Pharisees never believed they needed Christ. Therefore, they did not obey. And 
here's the application point of this point. It's really important we get this. The, the difference, the difference between uh, Christians and non-Christians, those in Christ and those out, outside of Christ, the difference between the Pharisees in this passage and the blind man, it's actually razor thin. It's razor thin. The difference between Christians and non-Christians isn't that Christians are more moral. I know a lot of people that have rejected Christ that are far more moral than me. It's not that Christians have greater values or they're more self-sacrificial. We should be, but that's not what the difference is. The difference between those two people, the Pharisees and the blind man, us in Christ and those outside of Christ, is that we in Christ recognize our need for him. That's the difference. That's it. There's no magic sauce. Is that we know we are broken. And so what does that mean for us? How, what, how do we apply this to our lives? We have to. We have to go to Christ, the only one that can bring healing, and say, I need you. I desperately need you. And it's not just those outside of Christ, guys. Citizens Church, I'm, I'm talking to you for a second now. If you're a member in here, and you ever find yourself thinking, I do this all the time, I'm so much better than that person because I'm in God, because I believe in Christ, I'm better than that person, then you're not getting it. You're not getting it. We're not better than anyone because we believe in Christ. We're only recognizing our own depravity. And what's happening when we think I'm better than this person or I'm better than this person is you're blinding yourself to that, that reality we've been talking about. And you're not going to allow yourself to be desperate for God. And if you are outside of Christ, if you're in here and you're not passionately following after God, then you have to, you have to start realizing, I need that. I need to be healed. I can't miss it. I can't miss that healing this time. Recognize before God your need for him. Recognize your own blindness and go to him. He wants you. He desperately wants you. That's his heart, to heal but you need to realize that you need his healing. And then you need to obey once you realize that. An awareness of this falling, we're moving to the third point. Awareness of your fallenness, of your desperation. That desperation, it leads to obedience, like we've talked about. And what does that obedience lead to? It leads to truly seeing and truly worshiping. So this is the final point. Go ahead and read with me in verse 34. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. And Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, Paul's. We're going to pause there. We need to look at for a moment. We need to break this down. What does the Pharisees' worship look like? Because that's what this—that's what is being focused on here. That he was cast out of worship. He was cast out of his ability to meet with God. So, what does the Pharisees' worship look like? Well, we can assume, and we see clues within the passage here, that it was extremely, extremely man-centered. The Pharisees, although they were the religious leaders, or although they were supposed to push these other Jews, everyone else there, towards Christ to truly see him, what was actually happening is they were leading worship in a way that was all about them. See, they, because they weren't desperate, because they didn't obey, they weren't able to truly worship. Because they were so self-centered in the first two steps, this step also was all about them. Their pride, their haughtiness has made it impossible for them to truly worship and see Christ. And that's really evident in their fear of this man, right? 
at this point, this man's presence in the temple by itself is threatening their, their man-made temple, their man-made worship. They've gotten so consumed with their own authority, with their own positions, it has completely lost any reality about God, and anything that would threaten that has to go. And the reason why I'm, I'm pointing this out is because as I'm writing this sermon, as I'm reading this text, I'm getting so convicted. Because I've really, I've really lost the true heart of worship in myself, too. Even writing the sermon, it's so consuming. It's so consuming to be perfect. I'm so consumed with how are people going to think about me? What are people going to think about me? Do they think I did it well enough? When in reality, I'm digging over these amazing truths about God, and it should be stirring my heart for him. But I'm so self-focused that I'm blinded to him. And that's the reality for a lot of us as we gather on Sunday mornings. It might not be a sermon for you, but it might be, do I look well enough? What do people think I look like? At small group, when I said that thing, did I sound smart enough? I, I don't really want to sing loud because I sound really terrible. If you stand next to me, you know I sound terrible, but I sing loud. So. <laughs> Am I righteous enough? What do people think about my righteousness? Have I displayed that I'm following God well enough, loudly enough? Do I pray loud enough? And what's happening when we have these thoughts is, is we're completely taking our eyes off of Christ in our worship and we're centering them on ourselves. And we wonder, and we wonder, why am I not joyful as I go to church? Why do I feel dead when I go to church? Why am I not passionately following after Christ like I see this person and this person? We wonder that question, and it's because we've made worship all about ourselves. And we're not worthy of worship. We're not worthy of it. Just like the Pharisees have made the temple all about them, we too fall into the exact same trap making worship all about ourselves. We need to refocus our hearts and our mind on God, the only one worthy to be worshipped. And now let's look at what this means that they cast him out. Back in that, that same verse, the Pharisees cast him out of the temple. So what does that mean for this man? Again, narrative, we need to figure out what does this actually mean. What it means for this man is uh, he, again, is a complete social outcast. I mean, Back then, in 2,000 years ago, in Jerusalem, if you were cast out of the temple, you're gone. You are an outcast from society. And even greater than that, the temple, unlike now where we can pray at the foot of our bed, we can read scripture, we can worship together anywhere, uh, back then, all of that had to be done in the temple. That's where the teaching was. That's where the Torah was. That's where everything, if you wanted to meet God, it was in the temple. And so this man's life is completely turned upside down. The Pharisees have even removed his ability to meet with God. They're thinking, now you have no worship. Now you have no love. Now you have no relationships because we're casting you out, because you've threatened us. But here's the cool thing about God. He's a God of reversals. He's a God of irony in a lot of ways. And so read again with me in verse, at the end of verse 35, beyond behind me. And Jesus, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? This is after he's found him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and he said, sir. He said, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped. This is such a beautiful, poetic ending to this story between Jesus and this man. 
This man was cast out from the only way to worship, the only way to meet with God. And what ends up happening? God goes and finds the outcast. And he says, look, I actually have a much better way to worship. I have a much better way to worship that's not so self-centered, but it's centered on me. And I, I love this man's response to him when, when Jesus says, do you know the Son of Man? I love that. At this point, he's just all about God. He's all about this man, Jesus. He's like, whoever he is, point me in the right direction. I'm all for it. And there's something that we're supposed to see with that. There's something we're supposed to take away with that. It's that when we come together, when we worship God, when we read scripture, when we pray to God, when we talk to others about God, when we do anything of our pursuit of God, we just have to be focused on God. That's all that matters. Am I making much of God and little of myself? Am I exalting him in everything I do or am I exalting myself? See, for this man, his healing, right? It started with, an, or sorry, not his healing, his worship, his desire for God, his relationship with God, it started with a necessity to be healed. That's how it starts for all of us, this desperation to be healed. But one day, we will get to the place where we do not obey out of a necessity, we do not obey out of a need, but we obey out of affection. Think of it like this. I I took Cam to Target like two weeks ago, and uh, usually, Katie gave me a huge list, so I was like, this is going to be like an hour-long thing, but whatever. And uh, Cam, usually when it takes a long time, gets a little bit rowdy, and so sometimes what I'll do is I will um, promise him a toy right? He's really into cars right now. So I'll be like, look, Cam, if you're good, at the end of this, I'll give you a toy. And what I'm doing there is I'm saying, Cam, if you obey now, I'll give you a prize later, right? And, but for some reason this time, when I went to Target, I started off in the toy section before I literally put anything else in the cart. And I decided I'm just going to give him the toy now, right? And I gave it to him. And what, ha- what proceeded to happen for the next 50 minutes, I kid you not, I'm not making this up. He did not take his eyes off of the cars. He did not look anywhere else, only time that he stopped staring at these five really cheap plastic cars was when I asked him, which one's your favorite? And he'd go, that, duh, duh. It's the only time he took it, it's the only time he had any wavering. Otherwise, he was just completely silent. silent. And guys, that is Christ's goal for us in obedience. Because I know what people are hearing when I say obedience. I know that you're hearing, man, this is just another Christian Another pastor talking about giving up the fun things of this life, the pleasures of this life, and just being restricted the whole rest of my life. I know that's what you're hearing. But here's the reality. When we start to obey Christ, when we make this the rhythm of our lives, it starts to feel less like obedience, less like I'm sacrificing the things of this world. And literally, your affections, your loves, your desires, they start to be rewired. And here's the thing. We were all designed to desire Christ. He is the most valuable thing that you could possibly desire. That's how we were designed. And so you're not actually giving up things to obey Christ. You're actually giving up things that matter none at all to have Christ. See what I mean? That obedience slowly turns from this begrudging, obeying God, and it slowly turns to instinctual affection to him. The rhythms of your life will turn from giving up things of this world begrudgingly to being in all of God at all moments. This is what awaits us. 
for those who follow Christ. Just as Cam didn't need to make decisions to obey so that he could have those cars, just like Cam did not have to actively say, I need to adore these cars, Cam just adored them. And by nature of adoring them and having this close relationship with them, he obeyed. And that is what can come with our relationship with God also. If you practice awareness of your sin, if you practice repentance and turning back to Christ, if you practice obedience and following him, you will start to realize that the things of this world pale in comparison to the unending joy that is to be had with him. And isn't that what you want? Don't you want to value the most valuable thing? No one chooses the thing of lesser value to value. Don't you want to value the most valuable thing? And that's Christ. That's him in this story. He's saying, you don't have to be blind anymore. I've come so that you may have spiritual sight. I've come so that you may be healed. I've come so that you may have me. And the more that you have him, the more you will adore him. And the more that you adore him, the more you will obey him. And you will just cast away the things of this world. That's what Paul talks about in Philippians 3, right? He says, I count it all loss. I count all the things of this world loss so that because of the surpassing worth of Christ. And so you need to ask yourself, do I count food as loss for Christ? Do I count this as loss for Christ? Do I count sex or drinking or whatever it is, the vices that we have that numb us to this world, do I count those as loss so that I may have Christ? He's the most valuable thing for us. He's the only one that brings healing. Go to him. Practically, This is what I want you guys to do. This is the takeaway from this. Start to pray that your sins will become loud in your ears, right? One of the most dangerous things as a Christian is to not realize that you're a sinner. So start to pray that sin will be loud so that it can be addressed. Then pray that you will have the desire to give it up, the fortitude to to turn back to Christ, to repent of it. Choose to follow So pray that sin will become loud, that it will make you desperate. And then pray for clear ways to obey Christ. Clear ways to turn to him. And then finally, pray that that obedience will stop feeling less like obedience, but it will turn into affection. That it will turn into instinctual affection for Christ. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.